Hello, my name is Andrew Gomison, and each and every week it is my privilege to welcome you to the Culture Watch podcast, a podcast outreach of Speaking for Him. We do this podcast because we want to share with you news items and current events from a Christian perspective. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And since we are called to be in the world, we need to be able to bring wisdom to discussions about the things that are happening around us. It is December, folks. Can you believe it? I am so excited for Christmas upcoming. My Christmas shopping is started in earnest, and I have a long way to go, but I'm glad that it has begun. I just wanted to let you know that I have some exciting Christmas-related movie reviews coming up for you in the month of December, so stay tuned for those. And with that being said, let's look at news for the week of December 4th. We start out our news coverage with a very surprising and sad story out of Kansas City, Missouri. Last night, we told you about the most famous nine-year-old in America, a young Kansas City Chiefs fan dressed up for a game against the Raiders. All he did was everything that diehard fans do. He painted his face, threw on the headgear, and went to the stadium with his family. No different than what you see every weekend in Arrowhead and Vegas and Pittsburgh. But male Karen at Deadspin only showed half his face, the black half, and accused the nine-year-old of wearing blackface. Quote, he found a way to hate black people and Native Americans at the same time. And the media piled on. The kid is still in full racist garb. The only part of him that's not intentionally kind of racist is the black part. The rest is team colors and he's going for just being a fan. But the racism is already in there, just not the kind that the right is picking up and flogging deadspin with over a five-year-old kid. Like, the stupidity of this is remarkable. It feels like we're in the Vegas residency phase of, like, uh, you know, racism. And that guy, Dan Lebitard, who accused the nine-year-old of racism, wore the exact same face paint on his face last year. There he is. That's how ridiculous this story is. And the blackface hoax gets even more ridiculous the more we learn. Here's the nine-year-old Chiefs fan posing with the Raiders cheerleaders. Do any of them look like they think he's racist? I only see smiling faces. And when the young fans started a tomahawk chop, the Chiefs players joined in. I'm just having such a hard time keeping track of all this racism. But it gets even more ridiculous. The mother of the young fan is saying her son is Native American. It turns out Holden Armenta, the nine-year-old getting slandered, has Native American blood. His family lineage, the Chumash tribe. They hail from California, an ancient people with a rich history on the Pacific coast. Holden and his family used to live on the Chumash reservation. So if anyone's entitled to paint their face and wear a headdress to a Chiefs game, it's Holden. Here's Holden at the Super Bowl last year. Holden can wear whatever he wants. And Americans can wear whatever we want. 
We agree, and Kansas City agrees, too. It's why the Chiefs fans are planning to wear black and red face paint to the next game, to show support for Holden. He's not only a proud Kansas City Chiefs fan, he's a proud Chumash Indian. Let's bring in Holden Armenta and his father, Bubba. So, Bubba, what was going through your mind the second you found out your son had been targeted like this? Um, it's, it's been a lot. It's been a pretty crazy couple of days. Um, I was mad, upset, upset for him, um, mad that he's upset. He's, um, he's pretty devastated. I mean, he's seen the videos and everything posted. He's excited. He's all over. It was his dream to get on the Jumbotron. And I've had family and friends call and, oh, we saw you on, on uh, Sunday Night Football. So he's excited. But then everything else came up and it's uh, been a little bit of a spiral. Holden, how are you feeling right now? Um, it's okay because a lot of kids at school are getting excited, but it's starting to get me a little nervous because... If they go a little bit overboard, it's a little scary. First of all, this story is appalling even if this kid is not an American Indian. This is a child dressing up for a football game. Face paint is a normal part of the football game experience. If you watch the YouTube video for this story, which I do recommend and all video clips that I share are on the blog at speakingforhim.blogspot.com that's speaking the number for him.blogspot.com you will find that they share with you as part of this story people in Raiders face paint black and silver covered you can't even see a non-painted part of certain people on their face, and some people even carry it to their chest. I mean, people go all out crazy painting their face. So this is nothing unusual, but we need to stop foisting our cultural appropriation charges on children. I remember we talked about this on my podcast around Halloween, probably last year, when people were saying things like little kids who aren't of Hawaiian blood can't dress as Moana or they can't dress as Pocahontas if they're not an American Indian. Let's cut this out, okay? Kids should be able to dress like whoever they want to dress and they should be able to do so in such a way as to not offend people. But the reality is, folks, that people wake up every day and they look for things to be offended by. And I will admit, as a sports fan, I have listened to Dan Lebetard in the past. I'm not a huge fan of his. To me, there was no one like Mike and Mike in the morning. But it's totally appalling that Dan Lebetard would take this blurb, supposedly from Deadspin, and totally believe everything that was written there and just go on a diatribe about it. That is completely uncalled for, and I am so sorry for this kid and his family that they are facing this backlash. 
But then I had heard on another news story about this particular issue that even with the new revelation that he is in fact an American Indian, that he's not culturally appropriating, that there has been no retraction from this website that smeared him for what they thought was uncalled for cultural appropriation. See, one of the problems that we have in our culture is that we report things and then even if we do do a retraction, the first story always gets more news coverage than the second story, so the retraction won't make that big a difference. And it's even worse when you choose not to do a retraction. So I hope that a lot of people show up in face paint for the Chiefs game on Sunday and support Holden. I'm so proud of that little boy for being able to do these interviews and to be in the spotlight as he is. I don't think there's anything wrong with him dressing in a headdress for the game. I mean, they probably don't now, but I wouldn't have been surprised in the past if the Chiefs actually sold headdresses in their gift shop because it's part of their mascot. It's part of their image is to be the Chiefs. Now, I can't guarantee that. And as I said, I know they wouldn't now, but I think people are just getting way too uptight about this issue. And when you go off on something on an issue, and you don't get all the facts, it just makes you look bad. The Proverbs talk about the dangers of jumping to conclusions. Um, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, the same is a folly and a shame to him. And so I would encourage you to... Number one, let kids be kids. But number two, get all the facts about a situation before you go off half-cocked about it. Our next story is somewhat Christmas-related since we have Christmas trees going up in big towns. And the New York Police Department was prepared for a tree lighting to possibly have unwanted consequences. And then a few hours later, this played out in Washington, D.C. at the tree lighting. Miller, for being here. We want to thank you for sharing a small piece of your state's abundant beauty with us in Washington. I also want to thank Chief Randy Moore with the U.S. Forest Service. Demonstrators showed up so they could shout him down and they want a ceasefire, they said. In New York City, the New York City Police Department is reportedly preparing for similar protests. Alexis McAdams is at Rockefeller Center. So stay peaceful. Do what you want to do. But a lot of these protests have not, that's not been happening. Hey, Harris, that's right. And the NYPD is ready for whatever happens next, right? We've seen these protests go from the dozens to the hundreds to the thousands, going across the city, shutting down traffic. And that's what possibly could happen tonight, according to NYPD officials here. So we've been checking in with them, trying to talk to them about what they plan to do. So check this out, Harris. We got an up-close look at some new drone technology. You can see it here right near Rockefeller Center. This is just one of the drones that is going to be in play tonight as they continue to monitor the crowds and the protests. We know thousands are going to show up 
up here to watch the tree lighting at Rockefeller Center. But we're also expecting to see thousands, possibly, of protesters here. So we're going to come back down to eye level and walk you over to the assistant uh, commissioner here with the NYPD, Kaz Daughtry. Thanks for talking to us. Just wanted to check in with you uh, about how important it is that you're using this drone technology to make sure the protests don't get out of control. This is this this, te- this technology is extremely important. Number one, it gives us a bird's eye view of exactly what's going on. God forbid if there's any major incidents, traffic disruptions, protesters blocking streets, guess what? Our executive leadership team at NYPD have a front row seat to exactly what's going on on the scene, on the ground. Um, and you guys are used to the protests, right? I mean, it's been dozens in just the past few weeks. They can block traffic. It can get out of control. But you guys are prepared to handle it. We are extremely prepared to handle it. I got to say again, there has no credible threats to New York City, no credible threats to the uh, this event tonight. Come out, enjoy, have a good time. You know, let's watch the tree lighting. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you again, and thank you for all you do. And, Harris, this is just a live look here, as you can see, too, of what we're seeing from those drones. We'll keep you posted on what they expect, Harris. So I wanted to take the opportunity to discuss the First Amendment for a minute. The First Amendment tells us that we have the freedom to peaceably assemble. And as we talked about in a previous episode... The difference between pro-Israel protests and pro-Palestine protests have been night and day. I talked about on a previous show that there was a pro-Israel protest where these people just got together and prayed for Israel and were very quiet and peaceable. And then by contrast, the pro-Palestine protest was shouting and even getting physical and threatening people. And it sounds like there was a similar issue with a tree lighting ceremony, I believe they said, in Washington, D.C. So New York was preparing for similar issues with their tree lighting ceremony. They had no credible threats, as you heard in that story, but they wanted to be prepared. And I know there have been exceptions because there's exceptions to every rule. But in my experience of being active in the pro-life movement, I know that peaceably protesting has been an important part of that fight. I have been um, at a pro-life rally. I have prayed outside an abortion clinic at least once in my life, I'm fairly certain, And usually what happens is these people just gather to prayerfully assemble, to be peaceful, to just pray that babies will be spared, that people will make the decision to not choose abortion but to choose life. That is the way that protests are supposed to work, okay? That is the way that we are supposed to make our voice heard. Peacefully and realizing that the power is not in our protest, the power is in our prayers. And so I think that we as believers, we need to realize that the First Amendment gives us the right to peaceably assemble. But peaceably is an important distinction there. The difference between 
a pro-life protest and a pro-Palestine protest is the difference between violent anger and peaceful sadness. That is the difference. And so I think it behooves us to understand and properly apply the First Amendment. Yes, you have freedom of speech, but I think something that is overlooked is the freedom of others to give you consequences for your speech. You know, it used to be, back in the day, that it was illegal to swear in front of women and children. It was understood that that went against the rules of decorum and decency. And those rules are all but gone in our culture now. And that is sad, but I think we need to remember that freedom, as I've said many times before on this podcast, is the freedom to do what we ought, not simply the freedom to do whatever I want, regardless of the consequences to others. My next story is out of Chicago, and I think it's kind of laughable, if it wasn't so sad, that Chicago goes from one crazy liberal mayor to another. And he seems to think that it is right-wing extremists who are to blame for the problems in his city. Residents who live near the new camp are protesting. When you think about all the things that we allow to slide, this is another thing that, you know, we just can't allow this to happen. There's no transparency from the mayor, not even from Alderman uh, the Ramirez. You know, it's very inhumane to do this. This mayor is acting like a dictator. He needs to go. He must go. Ugh, typical right-wingers. <laughs> but let's go back to Brandon. Chicago's woke mayor wants to blame everyone but himself. What we've seen is a very raggedy form um, instituted by right-wing extremism. Um, everyone knows that the right-wing extremism in this country has targeted democratically ran cities. And quite frankly, uh, they've been very intentional about going after democratically ran cities that are led by people of color. It's the same Republican right-wing extremism that stormed the Capitol. It's the same right-wing extremism that refuses to accept the results of the Civil War. They're still mad that a black man is free in this country. This is nothing new. But aren't you glad that the soul of Chicago won't be broken? And those are the words of, uh, I think, Beyonce. You won't break our soul. Oh, Jesse. He's like taking a page out of Jesse Smollett's book. It's like there's this huge hidden extreme MAGA, you know, criminal criminal gang going around carjacking and stuff. I don't see any red hats at the crime scenes. Well, you can't blame Biden for opening the border because the FBI then raid your house. Mm -hmm. That's what they did here to our mayor. I don't understand why he's saying that whites or conservatives are mad at him. Blacks are mad at the black mayor because he's turned the south side of Chicago into Latin America. No one can even move in that neck of the woods because they're just flooded with migrants. And you have to understand the black community in Chicago is feeling that they're being replaced. And they've said this. They've said that 
they're Americans and you're importing a population there and they're crowding them out of schools. They're crowding them out of soccer fields, out of basketball courts, out of jobs. And if you look at the explosion in the Hispanic population in this country, it's just astronomical. They've doubled over the last couple of decades. It used to be 5% of the population. Hispanics now are 20% of the population. The Hispanic population's doubling. The black population in 2060 is supposed to be flat. They are just they are having a lot of children. They are coming to this country. They're they're going to replace the political power of the black community within the Democratic Party. And the black community in the Democratic Party has been so loyal to the Democratic Party that they can't understand why they would do that. And and that's what people are saying in Chicago now. This mayor is not trying to fix anything. He's just pointing fingers. Mm-hmm. He's not progressing. These people are saying, oh, you were establishing so much progress. There's been no progress in Chicago. He's going to fail just like all these other progressive mayors are failing. And then he's just going to wind up at Harvard because that's what they do. Mm. Dana, you look at a lot of the problems that Chicago is facing, the migrant crisis, crime, gangs, tent cities. These are not caused by Republican policies. It's kind of like. Their political anger is being directed at the people pointing out the problems and not the problems themselves. It's like getting mad at your doctor for diagnosing your illness because he's a Republican. Right. Well, and also, as you pointed out, that wasn't exactly the right wing crowd that was yeah. holding the press conference. There hasn't been a Republican mayor in Chicago, I believe, since 1927. So let me get this straight, mayor. You are saying to us. That the reason for your problems in Chicago is because right-wing extremists don't like black people in power. You are saying that white people do not like the results of the Civil War, even though the Republican Party, who you claim hates you, was founded on the principles that all men are created equal and that they wanted to abolish slavery. Well, it may not have been the main reason for the war, a huge outcome of the war was that slavery was thenceforth and forever eliminated from the United States of America, and yet you have the audacity to say that Republicans are responsible for the problems of your city. That is ridiculous, especially when you realize the last fact that was put forth in this story when it was related that the last time a Republican was mayor in Chicago was 1927. We're talking about 96 years of Democrat control in Chicago, and yet they're somehow going to blame the Republicans for their problems. That is ridiculous. One of the key things that is important when living in the United States of America is being someone who will take personal responsibility for one's actions. And this mayor of Chicago is obviously not one of those people. Now, does this mean that uh, Republicans are perfect? No, it does not. But by and large, the Republican mindset is that they want to empower the people 
to live in a way that gives them liberty and the ability to do the things that they ought to do for the betterment of America. And the democratic mindset is we need to control Americans to give everybody the best chance for survival. That's the lie that they tell. And yet so many Democrat-run cities are struggling and no one wants to take personal responsibility. We really need to pray for cities like Chicago that they will have leaders that will rise up and say it is incumbent upon us to take responsibility for our cities, not others. I urge this mayor to do what he can to make Chicago better and not blame other people. It's also interesting to mention, uh, before I move on to the next story, that the people that were complaining about him in the press conference that was featured in this piece were not white Republicans. Some of them may have been Republicans, but they looked like the main base of Chicago, which is black Democrats. And they're still frustrated with their mayor because he is not making good decisions. It does not matter if you are a Republican or Democrat. If you are not making good decisions for the people that you are serving, then you do not belong in the role in which you are. By and large, politicians have lost the fact that they are called to be public servants. They are not called to be bigwigs who lord their authority over others and just enjoy putting their thumb on society and making their mark. They are called to serve the people. And I hope that we have some leaders rise up as we come to the 2024 elections who have a renewed sense of the fact that they need to be servants of the people as they go into office. They are voted on by the people. Therefore, they should serve the people. The next news story that I want to talk to you about is that former Justice of the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor, passed away this past week at the age of 93. Alert. This just in, former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor has died at age 93. Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court. She was appointed in 1981. She retired in 2006, a date I remember well, um, as then John Roberts, the current Chief Justice, replaced Ramquist, but initially was to replace her. Her resignation came on June 30th, 2005. She had three children and six grandchildren. She passed away in Arizona. She was, as Chief Justice Roberts said, a daughter of the American Southwest. A real, an, an incredible woman and sad news as we just learned that Sandra Day O'Connor has died. Shannon Bream, our Supreme Court expert, um, probably knew her very well. And Shannon, thank you for jumping on the phone with us as this news has just come in. Yes, and she was a pioneer in so many ways. I mean, you reference 
her time out west and where she was from. And it was such an interesting backdrop to see her become that first female appointed to the Supreme Court. You know, she often told the story about graduating from Stanford and not being able to get a job. No law firm would hire her as a woman. Um, back in the 50s and 60s, she really struggled to make it in the legal profession. So to think that she came out of school, she found a roadblock to any kind of legal career, and she just decided to plow forward and ends up on the Supreme Court. It's a really fascinating, truly American story. I mean, she went out and campaigned to become a judge because um, she thought, okay, this is my avenue. And she didn't win that first election. She did ultimately be, end up becoming a judge. But it, another part of her interesting background is that she actually was a lawmaker in Arizona in the state Senate. So she had a real appreciation for all of the different branches, for fighting her way into the legal profession. Um, she had a humor and a humility about her that people really respected and, and loved that she was sort of a cowgirl at heart. I mean, she mm-hmm. talked about those things quite a bit. And then, you know, after leaving the bench, which was mostly about uh, her husband and worrying about caring for him and his illness at that time, she didn't disappear from public life. I mean, she was out there very much pushing civic education. She worried that young Americans really weren't getting a full understanding of how government works, their role in it, what's it about, and, and the unique experiment that is America. So um, she stayed very actively involved until um, her own battle with dementia was what sort of ultimately sidelined her. But she wanted to keep fighting for what was, she thought was the best about the country, and she really thought that was going to be found in making sure that future generations understood how special our country was and what they could do to be involved to make it work. Shannon, what are some of the big consequential decisions she was a part of on the Supreme Court? Well, you think about the things that people will remember about her, and part of that is um, some of her jurisprudence on issues uh, like abortion. And um, she was, in, in her time, often thought of very much as a swing vote on some really critical issues on uh, all kinds of things, from affirmative action to, as I said, abortion. Um, she was part of Bush v. Gore. I mean, she was uh, a big part of what later became seen as Justice Anthony Kennedy's role. Um, so there were those who were frustrated in where she fell on abortion when they wanted her to be more conservative, clearly, on that issue. Um, and so they had really, you know, the pro-life groups, the, the Reagan, very conservative groups had really um, believed in her and, and wanted her on the court. So um, when the issue of abortion came into play, um, that was somewhere where she broke with the right and that they were very frustrated with her. So the thing that comes to mind with Sandra Day O'Connor is that she was a pioneer uh, because she was fighting for a position in the legal profession as a woman and she struggled with that. But I think it's important to realize that it's not whether she was a man or a woman that makes her a success. It is her positions that matter. Now, one of the interesting things that I came across as I was preparing for this episode is that she does really appear to be, in the truest sense, a moderate. But because of that, neither side really liked her. The conservative pro-life side didn't think that she did enough for the pro-life movement. She criticized Roe versus Wade, but then ultimately said, I'm not going to 
side against it if it ever comes up for a vote. I'm just going to leave it in place. And, of course, the liberals uh, didn't like her because she was more conservative than they would have liked. I thought it was interesting what was said at the end of this piece where the person that was speaking about her said that the pro-life groups of the day actually liked her and they expected her to do big things for them and then they were disappointed when she didn't do what they wanted her to do. And I do think that in certain respects it is kind of a crapshoot when you're nominating a justice because it is technically nonpartisan. So you can't like literally ask them all of their opinions on the moral issues of the day. You kind of have to look at their judicial opinions in the past and nominate them on that basis and then hope that they do the right thing when they get into that powerful position. And of course the Supreme court is a powerful position in effect because it is a lifetime appointment. Very rarely does a justice even retire from office. Sandra Day O'Connor being an exception to that rule. She retired in 2003 to take care of her husband, which is commendable, but usually you hang on until you die. We saw that with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She should have retired long before she did, but she wanted to make sure, hopefully, that the person that would replace her would be worthy of replacing her as far as following through on her understanding of the Constitution. Of course, she died during the Trump presidency, and we were able to get Amy Coney Barrett as a replacement justice for her. And so I was very gratified by that, of course. People that liked Ruth Bader Ginsburg probably were not happy uh, by that choice. But the reality remains that this is a very powerful position and Sandra Day O'Connor did make history in taking that position. But again, it's much more about her positions and where she came down on the important issues of life, um, both literally pro-life issues, but also just other important issues in life that really matters. And my dad and I were having a discussion earlier today when he said that he didn't like moderates. And I understand what he was saying because there are certain issues like the issue of the pro-life movement and the fact that all lives are valuable and the issue of marriage as God designed it where in my humble opinion, there is no room for moderation. The Bible says what it says about these issues very clearly, and we are a better society for having people that believe and practice those things the way the Bible outlines them. Those are just the facts. And so I'm very grateful that the justices that Donald Trump put forth have been doing good work in the Supreme Court and upholding the Constitution. I'm very thankful that now abortion is a state's rights issue. If for no other reason than understanding where your state lands on that issue. Now, I'm very sad to know that now Michigan is one of the most liberal, pro-choice states in the nation. 
and we have a lot of work to do to uphold pro-life values here in the state of Michigan, but we cannot give up because human lives are at stake. And whenever human lives are at stake, it's worth it to continue to fight on. Because Jesus said, let the little children come unto me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And he also said, I formed you in your mother's womb. So we know that life is valuable in all of its stages. Well, I'm about to wrap up this episode, and I hope that you have enjoyed it and been informed, and that if you appreciate it, you will share it with your family and friends. But before we go, I wanted to share with you a little bit from the DeSantis-Newsom debate. For those people who missed it, here's a little of the sparring and the topics. From schools to crime to COVID, they didn't agree. Watch. It's also important to respect parental rights to know what curriculum is being used in the classroom, and everything should be age appropriate. I actually have something that I brought that some parents have objected to. So this is a book that's in some of the schools in California. Florida, this is not consistent with our standards, called Gender Queer. Some of it's blacked out. You would not probably be able to put this on air. This is pornography. This is a ginned up, made up issue to divide this country. You talk about dividing this country. This is part of the culture war, the weaponization of grievance. This is part using education. We're focusing on math, science. We're focusing on reimagining our school system. He's criminalizing teachers and criminalizing librarians that check out the wrong book. You had more kids locked out of school for a longer period of time in California than anywhere else in the country. It was the working class kids. It was the middle income kids. His kids were in private school. They were in class. We have one of the best records under COVID, during COVID. And again, you didn't answer to the fact you had more learning loss. Ron DeSantis had more learning loss during COVID. Fourth grade reading, fourth grade math, eighth grade reading, eighth grade math. We outperformed you. That's not true. We talked about the numbers yesterday, right, Lawrence? Remember we held up, we went on that big board over there and we showed efficiency in math yesterday and the numbers were better in Florida. It's it's so true, and you got to remember also, Angela. This was the time where parents were figuring out what was being taught to their kids, and so there was a point in the debate, and we played that in the flashback there, where he's questioning. Ron DeSantis brings one of the books, and he says, "You know, do you support this? You know, pornography being taught to our kids?" And then all Newsom does is accuse. The senses of being a hateful person, never addressing should kids be having in that material in their classroom. So it was a, it was really a debate of facts versus emotions. And I just wonder if the independent voters are going to buy the slick guy or are they going to buy the facts that happen in Florida? Right. I just don't think DeSantis is vulnerable on COVID. He's not vulnerable when it comes to taxes. There's zero tax in the state. People come there because they want additional opportunities. He's not vulnerable on illegal immigration. They, they thought uh, that it was Gavin Newsom's thought process that bringing out Martha's Vineyard and sending those illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard was bad. I'm saying underline that. Say it again, because it was great. It was a awareness that the illegal immigration problem is coming to a doorstep near you. It is not a border state issue anymore. I thought he did the country a service where I think the people on the left would think, wow, that was so bad. Well, they send him to a beautiful area of the country and they quickly scooped him up and put him on a military base. I thought there were several zingers, too, from each side. And when you are watching this with a group of people and you hear everyone get 
gasp, you know that uh, that that was effective. And I think that Gavin Newsom, he went down to y'all hear him give this laundry list of all the things that he had done in California when it comes to clean energy, when it comes to this or that. And then uh, DeSantis's response was classic. He said, well, I met this guy the other day and he said he moved from California down to Florida. We were talking about why he did that. And then he pauses and he says, by the way, I'm Gavin Newsom's father-in-law. He said, your own father-in-law moved to my state. (laughs) So to give a little bit of background for those of you who do not know, there was a point this past summer, I believe, when Gavin Newsom was on Fox News, I believe, perhaps even on Hannity where this debate took place, and he challenged Ron DeSantis to a debate. And Ron DeSantis took him up on it. And so they've been hammering out the details of the debate for the last few months. It happened this past week. And again, it's kind of a weird premise for a debate in a way because you have one guy that is currently in second place in the polls to be the Republican nominee and you have another guy who is not, at least as of yet, running for president on the Democratic side because the incumbent Joe Biden is expected to be the nominee, at least for all intents and purposes at this time. I mean, I've heard whispers that the Democrats don't want him to be the nominee, but I don't know what the process would be to get him to not run. So for all intents and purposes, he is the nominee that the Republicans are gunning for. So it's a really interesting premise to have these two people that are not on a high probability to become president to be debating these issues. But I thought it was really important for Ron DeSantis to get this opportunity to debate Gavin Newsom to show the difference between conservative Florida and liberal California And I thought it was neat for him to be able to get his positions out because it's much easier to have two people talking about issue for 90 minutes than to have 10 people talking about issues for 90 minutes. And so I just thought it was a good opportunity for these issues to be articulated. And one of the Fox commentators, if you listen to the whole story, which I recommend, again, that you go to my blog and find the video link, you'll hear him say that even if neither of these two gentlemen become president in this term, they could be the nominees in 2028. So there could be some groundwork being laid for future campaigns. But regardless, I thought it was very interesting, a couple different things. Number one the issue that Gavin Newsom is talking about how great California is and how they beat Florida in so many areas pertaining to education, even though there were statistics put up to refute that directly. The second thing that I thought was interesting was that no matter how liberal you are, no matter if you believe in critical race theory or if you believe in Black Lives Matter or if you believe that abortion is a human right, I don't care who you are, you should be able to stand in solidarity with your conservative brethren on the fact that pornographic books 
and books talking about how to have sex should not be in middle school libraries. I've seen so many videos where a kid or their parent will get up and start reading from a book in the public forum of a school board meeting and be told that it's not appropriate only for the person reading it to turn around and say, well, then why is it in your middle school library? Why is it appropriate for my kid to take out, but not for me to read in a public school board meeting? There should be nothing in a middle school library that's inappropriate to read at a board meeting. That's the bottom line. I don't care how liberal you are. You should be able to agree on this issue. And it just hurt my heart how Gavin Newsom was dancing around that issue. Because if there's any issue we should all agree on, it should be that we should keep pornography out of the hands of our children. That should be agreed upon full stop. There should be no question whatsoever about it. The other thing that I thought was a zinger and also very funny was when it was brought up that Ron DeSantis actually talked to Gavin Newsom's father-in-law who said he moved to Florida from California because he wanted a better life And by the way, I'm Gavin Newsom's father-in-law. I thought that was so great. And I don't really know how Gavin Newsom responded to that, but I'm pretty sure he kind of ignored it. Because the clips that I've seen from this debate is that he will talk around any issue that he does not want to directly address. Well, that's about all I have time to share with you today on the Culture Watch podcast. But as I said, I hope you've been encouraged I hope that you will continue to think about these issues and that you will engage your community when necessary on these important issues and that above all, you will share the love of Christ this Christmas season. With that being said, for Culture Watch, this is Andrew Gomison saying, keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.